Well, my wife corrected me a few minutes ago, or a few seconds ago. Uh, I told you the pack the pantry is on August the 14th, or 13th. <laughs> she corrected me again. August 13th, it's August the 14th. So, praise the Lord for my wife. Okay. Before we get into Jonah, we'll be in Jonah 3 again today, or the book of Jonah again today. Before we get there, I want us to pray for our, our Columbus mission team as they, the rest of the team is still in Columbus this morning and uh, worshiping, half of them are worshiping with Redemption Hill and half are worshiping with Paramount. And I told Josh and Rush that we would pray for them this morning as they are in worship and they will be preaching here momentarily as well. So let's go to the Lord and pray for them this morning. Father, we are thankful, God, for your goodness and your grace and your people. We're thankful for your people at Crossroads Church in Utah. And God, for your people at Redemption Hill in Paramount. And God, we ask you to bless them as they are gathered. God, would you do a great work in their lives through your word to build your people. God, bless Josh and and Rush and Matt as they preach this morning. Give them wisdom and speak through them. Guide them by your spirit to proclaim your truth and the gospel. Oh, we pray for our team as they wrap up and head home this afternoon. God, would you go before them and bless them with safe travel as they journey home. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Many of you know in 2019, Somerset High School had the opportunity to play for its state championship. If I'm not mistaken, I think it might have been the sixth, the fifth or sixth time that they had the opportunity to play for a state championship. And Braden and I were on the road that day and we were were driving and listening to it on on the radio and and hearing the events unfold uh, was quite spectacular. I know some of you were, were probably at the game and and it all comes down to the wire. I won't give you the whole play-by-play of the game, but it, it comes down to the end, and Somerset is trailing by a series of pretty dramatic events, even to get into the position where they were trailing. They're behind and really get the ball deep in their, their own territory, and it really looks hopeless. But as the game would go, they're able to make their way across midfield, get close into enemy territory, and kind of threatened for a touchdown. It comes down to the last play of the game, and they go for a touchdown into the end zone, just kind of a a prayer. Ball comes in the end zone, hits the ground, game's over. But not so fast, right? There was a penalty flag thrown. Those of you who are there or listen, you remember this. There's a penalty flag, a pass interference call. And so Somerset gets the ball on the 20-yard line with zero time on the clock. They have one chance to do it. They have a second chance. And they throw the ball into the end zone for the winning touchdown. Pandemonium ensues. It was a pretty remarkable game. And the, the question, even when it happened, right, Braden and I are listening. When we found out that penalty was called, I, I told Braden, I said, what are they going to do? They have a second chance. What are they, they going to do with it? That's, that's the question. What were they going to do in that moment with the chance that they had received. We turn to Jonah 3 this morning and we come to the moment in Jonah's life, in Jonah's ministry, when God gives him a second chance. It is not a second chance as a result of a penalty flag. 
It's a second chance that is the result of God's mercy, God's grace in his life. So let's read Jonah 3, beginning in verse 1 today. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the, the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. We read here in in verse 1 what I would say is really the the turning point of the book of Jonah the the point at which all everything coming up to now is we've we've been focusing on and looking at Jonah's disobedience him fleeing from God him running from God the wayward prophet who is supposed to submit to the Lord but instead rebels against the Lord here in verse 1 we read verse 1 2 and 3 actually we read that Jonah obeys he actually does what God called him to do. In chapter 2, verse 10, we, we read again of God's providence. If you back up one verse there, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God's providence, that he, he again is providentially, sovereignly ruling over all creation. He spoke to the fish, and the, the fish did it. We again are confronted with the irony of one of God's creatures perfectly obeying and another of God's creature disobeying in Jonah but that irony is is shown forth and now perhaps maybe Jonah learns from the fish and he obeys we see here that it's a a pleasant sight in God's word that the the fish vomited Jonah out upon dry land we don't know exactly where this was we know that I had a conversation with someone this week they were talking about they had been taught uh, as a child that Jonah was um expelled from the fish in Nineveh but if you look at a map if the fish did that he has some serious power because Nineveh is several hundred miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea so what we gather by looking at a map is that the fish expelled Jonah Jonah got up and then he makes a very long journey to Nineveh to declare the message of the Lord the word 
of the Lord. Nineveh, if you're curious, is located in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. I want us to, to look at two aspects of this passage. The first one is found in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, and, and it's what you might call Jonah's second chance. Jonah's second chance. You know, Jonah in this moment is kind of wiping off the whatever is on him from being vomited out of a fish's mouth, right? He's picking up his pride, and in that moment, he's probably just saying, well, praise the Lord, I'm alive. But in that moment, what does he hear? The word of the Lord comes to him a second time, and, and God speaks forth a command, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. He comes to him again and calls him to do exactly what he had called the first time. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. So we see again, as we've seen in the first two chapters, I told you when we began, that every chapter of Jonah is a declaration, a display of God's great mercy. And here we have it again, the mercy of God on display. God did not have to call Jonah to do this again. He was not required to renew his calling on Jonah's life. Again, I would just point out to you, if, if the book ends at 2 verse 10, we would go, wow, that's remarkable. And then we would go on to the next story, the next passage. We would think nothing of it, right? If it just ends that, that Jonah was expelled onto dry land, we would even say, wow, God had mercy on him. What a good and gracious God. But it doesn't just end there. God is not finished with Jonah. Why? Because man's failures do not derail the plans of God. They don't derail any of God's plans. God's plan was for the people of Nineveh to hear the message that he wanted them to hear. And this was not going to interfere with his plan. And so he comes and he calls Jonah again. We learn here a, a very important principle that we need to understand. That God often gives second chances. We don't learn that God's required to give second chances. This isn't something that you look at and go, oh, God has to give me a second chance. Now, there's nothing God has to do that we want him to do. God is not required. We don't tell him what to do. But we do learn that in his mercy, he often does give second chances. In, in this moment, he doesn't just cast Jonah aside. He doesn't look at him and say, you know what? You disobey me. I'm done with you. I'm moving on. I, I'm finding someone else. I'm going to find another prophet down the road that will actually listen to me. Jonah, your day is over. No. What we see here is we see a picture of God's patience and his steadfast love, something that the people of God had greatly depended on. I want to just turn your attention to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9, if you want to flip over, it's, it's earlier in the, the Old Testament. If not, you can just listen. But in, in Nehemiah 9, the, the people of Israel gather together, and what they're doing is they're confessing their sins. They're, they're recounting of the rebellion of Israel. So when you, when you read Nehemiah 9, the, the Levites come together, and, and they say, Stand up and bless the, the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them. You preserve them. The host of heaven worships you. This is a, a very high view of God. They're exalting, they're magnifying the Lord. 
Well, well, after they do that, that was in Nehemiah 9, verses 5 to 6, what I just read to you. Well, starting in verse 7, the, the Levites start recounting the rebellion of man. Well, all that God had done, actually, he recounts all that God had done first, leading up to, to, to the Israelites' rebellion. But he, he talks about, the, or they talk about uh, God calling out Abram, and Abram going, uh, answering God's call. They, they talk about the Egyptian bondage, when, when the Israelites are, are placed in bondage in Egypt. They talk about Exodus and the, the calling of Moses to deliver the people from Egypt, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments in the wilderness, and how God provided for them. But then you get down to verse 16. In the midst of all that God is, all that God's done, when you come down to verse 16, we read this, but, but, they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. I I draw your attention to this passage simply to remind you of the display that we see throughout Scripture, and really in the Old Testament, uh, of the people of God resting in God's Forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his patience, his steadfast love, and the fact that he is a faithful God. Exodus 34, 6 talks about the same thing, that statement, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. We find that Exodus 34, 6. We find it in Numbers 14, 18. And we see in Nehemiah 8, or, or Nehemiah 9, I'm sorry, I'm sorry we, we see two realities. We see man's rebellion contrasted with God's character. Man rebels against God. He's disobedient to God. He's stiff-necked in in response to God. But then we see God's character, that he's ready to forgive. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's abundant in steadfast love. He will not forsake his people. And so we, we see this, and we realize that when we come and we deal honestly with our sin. We look at our sin, and we can, all we can do is we cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. We don't appeal to, well, well God, I, I sinned, but I also did this. When I'm confronted with my sin, I don't then go, but, but, but God, I, I did this right, and I, I told that guy about Jesus, and I, 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 I led a, a family worship, and I, I did this. No, I don't, I don't try to cover over my sin with my righteousness. I can't do it. In that moment, what do I do? I appeal to God's character, to God's mercy, because He is ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. I I want you just to see that this combination of God's character continues through the Old Testament. It just continues. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and guess what? Abounding in steadfast 
love. Joel 2.13, you want to guess what it says? Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Our own prophet that we're studying, Jonah, would say the same thing in Jonah 4.2, although it's an interesting statement why Jonah says that. We'll talk about it next week. But he, again, appeals to and mentions the character of God. You are a God gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So all of those people who would say, oh, the Old Testament God is just a God that's just and wrathful and holy, and he has no mercy and grace, they need to open up their Bible and read it. That is not who God is. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he is a faithful God. It is the patience, the mercy, the grace, the steadfast love of God that gave a second chance to the people of God throughout the word of God. It was God's patience and grace and mercy that gave a second chance to Abram after he lied to the Egyptian king. It was the mercy and grace of God that gave a second chance to Moses after Moses stood there hearing the Lord call from the burning bush and go, well, I don't know, and he's making all these excuses and asking all these questions. God doesn't say, that's it, buddy. You're not going to listen to me. I'm here in a burning bush. You're standing on holy ground. If you're not going to listen, I'm going to move on. Gave him a second chance. It was the mercy of God that gave David a second chance after he sinned with Bathsheba. The mercy of God that gives James and John a second chance after they selfishly request to be greatest. It's the mercy of God that gives Peter a second chance after he denies the very Lord he followed for three years. Then he sits down with him and says, I want you to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's the mercy and grace of God that gives you and I a second chance when we stumble into sin. In rebellion, we disobey. So what that tells us is this, is that we must not allow Satan to look at us and say, it's over, you're done, God doesn't love you. Because in that moment when you hear that, whether it is Satan telling you that, whether it's someone else telling you that, whether it's your own sinful flesh, your mind going, God does not love me, doesn't care about me, he, I'm done and over, I'm worthless, I've messed up too many times, then you appeal to the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who you appeal to. And you know and you remember that your mess is never, never greater than God's mercy. It is never greater than God's mercy. So, before going on, though, we think about that. Before going on, we have to say this. There is one place, one time, one event that God does not give a second chance. That's when we stand before him at the end of days. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In that moment, there is no second chance. Nahum talks about the, the patience of God. In Nahum 1.3, he says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And he, the Lord, will by no means clear the guilty. God is merciful. God is patient. God is kind. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful. And he is a God of second chances. It gives you a second chance. But you, if you stand outside of Christ, if you are not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, in that moment when you stand before God at the end of days, you breathe your last, in that moment you have died, and you face judgment. There is no second chance in that moment. Paul wrote in Romans 2, Or do you presume 
This is 2, verses 4 through 5 of Romans. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God gives second chances. He redeems. He shows mercy in the midst of our mess. But you must not presume on God's kindness, for God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So unbeliever, those of you sitting here today that are outside of Christ, you need to know there is not a second chance. There is not a moment where you die and you stand before God and go, I want a second chance. No, man is appointed to die once and then face judgment. If you are in earshot of these words today, you can count your second chance right now. (laughs) You're having chances. God's kindness is that you're here and you can hear the gospel message that there is salvation in Christ alone. Christ alone. That God sent forth His only Son to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death for you, a sacrificial death in your place. And he rose from the grave and he has promised that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that all who confess their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That has been put before you. And if you deny that in the end, there's not a second shot. Trust Christ today. Trust Christ today. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. Repent and trust him. It's very easy, very easy to do. In verse 2, we see the command of God. Jonah's second chance. What does that second chance look like? Is it something radically different? No. What does God say? Compare this to to chapter 1, verse 2. What does he say? Chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. What does he say here? In 3, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. We see the same exact call. His call is the same. Now, there is one addition, one little tweak where God says, I want, to call, I want you to call it against it. What are you going to call it against it? You're going to call it the message that I told you or that I tell you. God is carrying out his plan. Again, Jonah had not derailed that plan. God is renewing his call. He's renewing his call. Listen, when we get to the other side of running from God, when we've disobeyed, we struggle, we sin, we think it's all over, we think we missed our chance, God is still calling. And you need to know that. Again, you have not derailed God's plan. If you sit here today and you go, man, I have lived in disobedience, I've struggled, I've, I've faltered, I've rebelled, turn to God. Turn to God. If you say, you know what? I I didn't go on that mission trip. I thought I should have gone. Now I'm like, man, I should have gone. I didn't go. Well, guess what? The Great Commission still stands. It's still calling you to go. You you stand here today, and I've I've dropped the ball. I have not loved my my wife well. I have not led her in the Lord. I have not served her as Christ serves the church. I have not loved her sacrificially. Well, guess what? The call is still the same. Love her like Christ loved the church. The call hasn't changed. You say, well, I'm sitting here and I've been so disobedient to my parents. I rebel, I I cheat, I, I work around the systems, I manipulate them, and I don't do anything they say. Well, guess what? The call is still the same. Obey your mother and father. It hasn't changed. 
You say, I, I, haven't, I haven't served the church. I've got all these gifts and these opportunities, and I haven't served the church. I haven't used my giftedness for the church. Guess what? The call has not changed. The call is still to use your giftedness to serve the body of Christ. The question that comes before us is the same question that I think if we're reading Jonah for the first time, we come to in chapter 3. We hear the call and we go, ooh, I've heard that before. That was in chapter 1. It's the same as that call. He's renewed it. What's Jonah going to do? Verse 3, if we're reading for the first time, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He went. He obeyed. He went according to the word of the Lord, it says. Jonah obeyed. That was the question. Would he obey? Would he do it? He does. He goes to be the ambassador of the Lord that God had called him to be. He goes to represent. He goes to speak not his message, thanks be to God. We'll find out in chapter 4 that his message is probably a little different than the message that he, that he was told to take. But he goes and he presents God's message, right? He declares the message that God gave him. Why? Because he was an ambassador. It's the same thing that we read of our role. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 20, we are called ambassadors. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, Paul describes. We are to be ministers of reconciliation, God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. That is our role. That's our responsibility. The same thing Jonah had. He went to bear the message of God. We are called to bear the message of God. That is our responsibility. Jonah messed up. Jonah rebelled. Jonah disobeyed. Why? Because he was a fragile clay jar. The same thing Paul says. If you Later, if you look at 2 Corinthians 5, he, he's talking about this, that we are ambassadors of Christ. Well, if you back up to chapter 4, uh, verse 7, he says that, that we, he describes himself, he said, we have this treasure, talking about Christ, the gospel, in jars of clay, that we would show his surpassing power. Paul, Paul says, listen, we're fragile. We make mistakes. We sin. We are not perfect. We are not mighty. But he is. He is. We are his ambassadors. And we carry the message that God has given us to carry. Verses 4 through 10 give us kind of the second aspect or the second angle on this passage. We look at Verses 4 through 10, we see Nineveh's response. We learn of the size of Nineveh. Scholars are not certain exactly what this means, the size. We know that it didn't literally take three days' journey just to walk across it, as far as like just if we just set out to walk. It wasn't that big. So they're not exactly sure what we do know is that Nineveh was a leading city, it was an influential city, it was huge. And so they don't know exactly what that phraseology means in the Hebrew. But it took three days journey, perhaps around, perhaps just walking to and fro. And he walks, he goes to Nineveh, and he declares the message of God. The message that it says here that he declares is yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what we have recorded for us here so we know he said that again most scholars would say you know what that's probably a summary statement most likely there's probably more going on that Jonah said but we don't know that for certain could have been may not have been but what we do know is that Jonah cried out and said that you will be overthrown in 40 days if you do not repent he calls the people of God or the people of Nineveh 
to repent. Now look at verse 5. Look at Nineveh's response. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is a display of of repentance and faith. We see faith in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. It's the same terminology we read of Abram in, in Genesis 15, 6, where we, we read that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And they come here, they believe God. It's more than just this mental agreement with what someone says. It's expressing a trust in someone, a trust in God. And their belief was followed by what? No life change? Their belief is that they are followed by repentance. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the the least. It is a widespread repentance. The people all throughout Nineveh start repenting. This isn't a top-down repentance. This is the people of the city hearing and responding. They're believing. They're repenting. It works its way all the way up to the kings and their nobles. The king and his nobles, verses 6 through 9. We read that it says that the word reached the king. And he rises from his throne, he removes his robe, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits in ashes, he's repentant. He issues a proclamation. That's an easy proclamation from a king at that point, right? When the whole city's repenting and doing the same thing, you're doing what they are, okay, I'll issue a proclamation, right? He issues a proclamation. The whole city is responding. And the question, I think it's a realistic question, did they, did they truly repent? This is Ninevites. Did they really repent? Well, I, I don't know. Well, here's what we do know. If you just think about it, we know for certain is that they believed. They believed God. We know that they repented. We just read that. We we're told later in verse 10 that we'll talk about in just a minute that God relented. Right? We know that. But we also know that the city is later punished by God. Nahum prophesies that. And the city is ultimately destroyed. So I I don't know what all that means. What I do know is what we read here is that they believed and they repented. So the question that comes to mind was, is this real repentance? Is it genuine repentance? Or is it just this this shallow repentance? Is it it what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7.10, this this worldly sorrow that leads ultimately to death, where you're just sorrowful over what, what has happened, the consequences Or is it a godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance that results in salvation? Paul distinguishes the two in 2 Corinthians 7.10. So so which one of those is it here? I I don't know. I don't know. What we do know is that their response led to God's mercy. God relented, right? But we also know they were destroyed. At minimum, I think this should be somewhat of a reminder that it could very well have been an instance where one generation of Ninevites believe and they repent, and the next generation of Ninevites is wicked and they're destroyed. It could, at minimum, be a reminder of the importance for us in generational discipleship. At minimum, it should remind and in the back of our head go, you know what, we know as the people of God that He has instructed us and told us to teach our children to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the words that Moses gave to the people that day, this is Deuteronomy 6, was to be on their hearts. And they were to teach those words diligently to their children. 
as they went about, as they woke up, as they went to bed, as they went along the way. Listen, we have a responsibility, adults. All the young people here, we have a responsibility to tell them about Christ. Is that what happened in Nineveh? I don't know. I don't know. But I think at minimum, in the back of our head, it should be a little bit of a flag saying, hey, heads up, heads up. So what else can we glean from Nineveh's response? The, the biblical teaching of belief evidenced by actions, that repentant faith is biblical faith, that belief in Christ should be accompanied by repentance, turning from God. There is evidence of saying that you believe in Christ. I, I spoke to a young man yesterday morning in Columbus, and he had filled my ears with profanities until he found out I was a pastor. You know, then I asked him, I said, are you a follower of Jesus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we talked about the gospel, and I shared the gospel with him. We talked more about it. He talked about words he had said. I said, buddy, that prayer means nothing. It means nothing. Saying words is nothing if it's not something you truly believe and you turn from your sin. Repentant faith is what we see in Scripture. Belief should be evidenced by our actions. If you sit here today and you say, I believe Christ, but there's no evidence in your actions, then there's a problem. You need to go home and read James 2, 14 to 26 this afternoon. Our faith is evidenced by our lives. Now look at verse 10. Nineveh's response, Nineveh's response is belief. They believed God and then they repented. Look at what God does in verse 10. Very interesting statement. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented. He responded to their repentant faith by relenting. Now, Jeremiah is down the road. Jeremiah has not lived yet. Down the road, God would lead Jeremiah to write in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, he would lead him to write this, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have intended to do for it. Okay? So we know later on, and we've seen that demonstrated throughout Scripture, up through Jonah's day even, we've seen it, even seen it in the people of God, in the book of Judges. The question then that comes to my mind, and maybe it comes to yours, if not, it's a, a question maybe we wrestle with, is does God change his mind? Does God change his mind? I mean, we, we sang of, of God's faithfulness. We talk about God being um, in, enduring his steadfast love. Does this cast doubt into our minds about who God is, about him being faithful to his word? But that's a question regarding God's, what's known as his immutability. God's immutability, the, the idea that, that God does not change in his nature and character, that he is never changing. He always and eternally is spirit. He always and eternally is triune in nature. He always and eternally and ever is holy, good, loving, faithful, powerful, and so on. He's always wise. Those things, God does not change in who he 
is. His nature does not change. There is no point at which he ceases to be who he is, ceases to be God, where he ceases to be as powerful as he once was. And there's no point at which God becomes more powerful because God is God. He's immutable. He does not change. However, when we come to this statement, we understand why God is unchanging. He's immutable in nature and in character. We understand and we see demonstrated in Scripture that He is changing or immutable in regard to relationships, in regard to interactions with people. He responds in time to the actions of those He relates to. I think one of the easiest ways we see this is outside of Christ. We're described as a child of wrath. We're an object of his wrath. We're described as enemies of God, at enmity with God. At salvation, you're justified. And what are you described as? A child of God. You've been adopted. You're a recipient of his great grace and his great mercy. You have gone from foe to friend, an enemy with God to a child of God. We see here at that moment that Nineveh would be destroyed but they turned they repented and God relented God responds in that moment to the actions of man it did not change his character did not change his nature his nature his immutability of character his immutability of who he is right his nature his character is the foundation it's the foundation of his relational mutability. So God does what he says he does. He is faithful to be who he is and to do what he says he will do. And he responds to man the way he says he will respond to him. So what this tells us today is this, that if you sit in here today as an object of God's wrath, as a recipient of his punishment and discipline as an unbeliever, right, as one who the holy God will punish for your sins, rightly so, because he is absolutely righteous, just, pure, and holy. It tells us that if you repent and believe in Christ, he will do what he has said he will do. He will show you mercy. He will pour out grace upon you. He will save you. He makes you his own because he is a gracious and a merciful God who is steadfast in love. He is faithful. He is abounding in mercy. He is abounding in grace. Just a final word. When we look at this, and we see Nineveh's response, I would say that we should be praying for a Ninevite response in our own nation. We should be praying for this. call out against Nineveh. Why? This great and mighty city. Their evil has come up before me. Listen, we live in a nation that defies God. We live in a nation that applauds wickedness. We live in a nation that calls evil good. We live in a nation that stands opposed and against God in every corner. And it needs a great work of God done in their midst. Our, our nation does not need all that it thinks it needs. 
Our nation does not need this new philosophical tool to heal injustice and racial turmoil. Our nation does not need more celebrities to applaud movements that stand against the sanctity of life, God's view of marriage, and God's design, His good design for good for men and women. It, it, it does not need another Facebook rant from you or from me about my political position. It, it does not need another how-to book on self-image and prosperity. It, it doesn't need the prosperity gospel. It doesn't need our religiosity. It doesn't need any more internet influencers promoting trends and worldviews that undermine human flourishing. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't need Christians who are professional consumers of good sermons yet never live out the Word of God. It doesn't need any of that. What, what our nation needs is a, a movement of God like happened in Nineveh. Our nation needs Christians who are doers of the Word. Our nation needs Christians who simply love God wholeheartedly. Our nation needs Christians who will obey God's call to make disciples. It needs Christians who take that seriously. It needs people to hear God's call. People who would go, Christians who would go and usher forth God's call to repent and believe. It needs Christians who are willing and excited to share the gospel with people they utterly disagree with. People who may have hurt them in the past. People that, if they really are honest, they're like, I don't know if I want that person to turn. I'd rather see them burn. Our nation needs Christians who care more about God's call and God's will than my own. Our nation needs to look to the God of the Bible, who is holy, who is righteous, who is just in all his ways. Our nation needs to turn to the God who does justice, defines justice, and calls his followers to do justice. That is the definition of justice. It's in Scripture, and we need to see the God of Scripture and let him define what that is. Our nation needs to turn to the God who gives life, sustains life, defends life, is life, and grants eternal life. Our nation needs Christians who care more about Christ than their political party, who talk more about the gospel than they do about their political soapbox. Our, our nation needs to see less false gospels and to see more of the biblical gospel that is Christ-centered, grace-driven, and God-glorifying. Our nation needs to repent and believe God. Here's the question. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? We can agree with every one of those statements. We can give them a hearty amen. And then we can walk out and go to Zaxby's and sit down and have a lunch and do nothing about it. Or we can agree with those and we can seek the Lord and we can pray and say, God, use me. I want to be a part of it. I want to be used of you. God, send me wherever you want to send me. Tell me to do whatever you want me to do. And God, I am going to do it. It doesn't matter what I did then or how I've slipped, how I've stumbled. I'm going to pursue you now. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Three final questions to ask yourself today. Three final questions. 
Here's the first one. Do I show others the same mercy that God has shown me? Do you display the same mercy that God has shown you? I, I, I pray that we would never be those who rejoice in God's great mercy and we never show mercy. Are you displaying God's mercy to others? Second question. Will I obey God's call on my life today? Will I obey today? The, the question is not, I'm not asking you, did you obey yesterday? And I'm not asking you, will you obey tomorrow? I want to know, what are you going to do today? Will you obey God's call on your life today? It's a great question every morning. And the final question is this. Am I answering the call to proclaim the message that God has given me? Listen, we're great at proclaiming messages. I'd say all of us in here are really good and effective at proclaiming the messages that we want to proclaim. The message that we're called to proclaim that we know is that God is a holy God and God created man to be in relationship with him, created him in his image, but man rebelled. And because of that rebellion, he was separated from God and there's nothing, nothing that man could do to remove that separation. But God sent forth his son in his mercy, his grace. He sent forth his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for the sins of man and to raise from the grave three days later, victorious over death, and to promise that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead would be saved and know him eternally. Very simple message. Very simple message. Are we proclaiming that message? Am I proclaiming that message? Three questions from Jonah 3. Do I display mercy? Will I obey today? Am I proclaiming the message that God has given us? We need His grace. We need His mercy. We need Him. Let's pray. Father, we bow today. And God, we are thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your calling on our lives. God, you have called everyone sitting in this room, God, who is a believer. You've called us to go and make disciples of all nations. You've called us to tell people about you. God, you've called us to declare the excellencies of your great mercy. And you've called us to obey. But God, realistically, we stand as those who are weak. God, those who rebel. God, those who sin. And so, God, we stand before you today in need of your mercy. God, we need you to strengthen us by your grace to serve you well. We need you to strengthen us by your grace to obey when it is uncertain what that's going to look like. Jonah had no idea what it was going to look like when he walked into Nineveh. God, we need your grace to strengthen us. God, we need you. Would you please strengthen our faith? Would you deepen our love for you? And would you deepen our love for those who don't know you? God, work in our lives, we pray this morning. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.